Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. The history of humanity is arguably the history of us trying to explain everything around us. Both science and religion have developed as divergent threads of this goal, inextricably linked but often at odds with one another. Science fiction and cosmic horror also like to explore similar issues, so it feels natural that we are seeing more and more mashups of these two genres. Mixing the unexplainable cosmic horror with our need to define everything precisely in the realm of hard science fiction leads to endless narrative tension. Ada Hoffman's debut, The Outside, gave us a queer scientist with autism protagonist who tackled reality-warping science as well as unknowable and seemingly all-powerful gods. This year, the follow-up, The Fallen, has hit shelves, so we wanted to talk to Ada about this popular genre mashup trend. So, Ada, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, hello, my name's Ada Hoffman. I am a Canadian science fiction author, and as you just said, I am the author of the Outside series in particular. The Fallen, which just uh, came out, is the second one in a planned trilogy, and they are space opera science fiction with cosmic horror elements in them and with not a protagonist. And they are set in a universe ruled by artificially intelligent gods. Yeah, lots of, it's, it's like really eerie and creepy and sciencey and yeah. <laughs> it's very atmospheric. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay, so let's sort of start by defining like science fiction versus cosmic horror. You know, what do we mean by those terms? Well, the way I like to think about genres, I don't like to think of them as strict categories. You know, I don't like to say, oh, here's the litmus test that you have to use to figure out whether something's really science fiction or if it's actually fantasy. What I like to think about instead is genres as a set of aesthetics and a set of narrative expectations, because then you can see that each genre has its particular traits um, that come with it that shape how people respond to it. But you can also layer sets of those traits on top of each other. You can combine them, you can modify them, you can play with them a little more. So in science fiction, the aesthetic of it, the set of expectations are about the future and they're about technology, um, often, often technology in space, although not always. And with cosmic horror, um, the aesthetic is a bit different. It's not so much about the time and place where the characters are or the technology they have access to. With cosmic horror, what really makes it cosmic horror is more the sense of the unknowable, of something vast and kind of dangerous because we don't understand it and dangerous because it's so vast that it can't really care about us, even though it's doing things that might affect us. And so because... Science fiction is defined for me based on what the characters have access to and what physical things are around them and where and when they are. But cosmic horror is defined more by this feeling. And that means 
it's very easy to combine them because they don't contradict each other or cancel each other out at all. I was thinking that one of the things that science fiction and cosmic horror seem to have in common is this idea of just being huge. I mean, I must admit, when I think of science fiction, I automatically go to Star Trek Next Gen because that is my touchstone for all science fiction. But you you do have that capacity to kind of make it very, very global. And, you know, the whole whole thing like pandemic and plagues and all this kind of thing, science fiction. But you can also get very, very personal. I think about things like Moon and AI as a couple of films I was thinking about recently and just keep it quite small. But when you come to cosmic horror, I almost feel like cosmic horror, by its very definition, needs to be big and it needs to be threatening the world and you know if not a world then a whole not just a, a little village it's got to be like that a whole section of the world do you think it's possible for cosmic horror to really kind of zone in on people and what matters to them and their own personal dangers as well as science fiction does or do you think cosmic horror is always going to have a case of it's got to be big to be cosmic well i think that it is possible to focus on the personal in cosmic horror because Because the way to do that is simply to ask the question, well, when a person encounters something that's so big and unknowable, the way cosmic horror is big and unknowable, what does that do to them as a person? And this is actually something that is very present in historical and current cosmic horror throughout the history of the genre. There's always this element of, oh, you know, well, this person encountered these, these old gods or these old mysterious ruins and it was so alien and unknowable to them that they just went mad. It's a bit of a problem trying to engage with that particular set of tropes today because, of course, they're very ableist tropes, you know. Um, but at the same time, that is something I've tried to play with in the outside series is that psychological element of what happens when people encounter something too big for them to comprehend. What happens when people maybe encounter something so big and dangerous and upsetting that it gives them psychological trauma? It changes who they are as a person. Um, And when you combine that with the fact that the characters in the outside are not neurotypical to begin with, that just gives you a lot of room to play and to try to figure out what's going on. And I really enjoyed that aspect of writing the books. You mentioned how... There are some aspects of cosmic horror in particular that you you kind of don't want to write about or, or invoke <laughs> now, writing now, because obviously, you know, cosmic horror has it, it, it tinged, <laughs> tarnished uh, <laughs> sort of history from where it comes from. But in particular, given that this is a podcast about feminism, uh, <laughs> we, we do want to talk about how sort of women are portrayed and... Mm-hmm. You know some of um, the the new cosmic horror that I'm I'm seeing. So like yours, and I don't know if you've read uh, Beneath the Rising by Premi Muhammad as well. You know we have cosmic horror with scientists, with female scientists as well, like at the core. And I think this is is really great to see with a genre that came out of quite toxic, masculine, very white scented, very like just absolutely stereotypical kind of things happening in in that genre so it's it's really nice to see I mean how do you find women sort of portrayed in in science fiction and in cosmic horror and like wanting to mix them up because again like you've got a scientist main character and it often feels like 
when women are allowed to be major characters in the sci-fi, they're not often the science kind of person, or or maybe they're just a little bit more, you know, kept away from the drama and the action. Well, I feel like, I feel like, first of all, that's some great questions. Second of all, I feel like it's several questions in one. Um, the third of all, I think when it comes to how women are portrayed in a particular genre, I often feel that's less to do with anything I want to make a blanket statement about in a genre. It's more to do with the individual authors um, because there are authors in science fiction who are writing really, there are women authors, especially who are writing really wonderful female characters, female centric stories. There are trans authors writing wonderful trans centric stories. And there are male authors who might, you know, they might be writing very sexist stories with not very many female characters or with female characters who are sidelined, or they might be doing a slightly better job just depending on the man. And um, when we think about how gender is portrayed in a genre, it's really less a question of anything you can say about the genre as a whole. It's more a question of which authors you see getting the most press almost and what those authors are doing. And in terms of cosmic horror, you know, obviously, like you said, it's a genre with a very tarnished history. H.P. Lovecraft was horrifically racist, even by the standards of his time and several other ists as well. Um, and so, so we see what I've been seeing in the last decade or so with cosmic horror is really a lot of a lot of authors very intentionally engaging with that and trying to reclaim it. So we have, we have some wonderful authors of color, people like Victor Laval, Sylvia Morena Garcia, uh, Ruthana Emrys, who are, are trying to reclaim cosmic horror back from those racist elements. And so I'm not surprised there are, there, you know, there are women trying to reclaim the genre from its sexist beginnings as well. And another thing that I think I mentioned already that I'm trying to do with the outside series is to reclaim it from some of its ableism. So there are definitely, there are authors out there doing that. There are a whole bunch of books you can find where people are starting to do that. And I think it's just a question of how quickly that movement reaches the mainstream. And when you start to see it on, you know, in, on the big screen, and in stuff that everyone's aware of, instead of just in this exciting little corner of publishing, that's that's yeah, really the question: yeah. is how fast that happens. <laughs> no, absolutely. Now, obviously, I'm here for the the horror stuff, um, and one of the things that humans always fear is what they don't understand. And obviously, this is a, a brilliant area for science fiction because we we don't understand so much. Uh, so, when science fails us. Is it inevitable that we're going to look for something other to explain it? Sorry, I had air quotes there. You couldn't really see them. But um, other as in something bigger than science, something more mystical. And do you think we will ever be able to accept that simply not knowing is just something we're going to have to deal with? Or are we always going to have this as the fear of the unknown? Well, I think I think it's almost a tautology that humans will always want to understand or try to understand. I think that's just how we're wired. But I don't think it's inevitable that we turn to mysticism for that. I think some people want to turn to mysticism and I certainly, I'm not anti-mysticism. There's mysticism in the outside series. That's a valid way of doing it in my opinion, but I see just as many people 
who don't turn to mysticism, who are maybe atheists or who just don't feel inspired by that side of things and who instead look at science and look at the amount that we understand about it and the amount that we don't and say, I think it's beautiful that we don't understand everything yet. I think I'm just going to bask in the complexity of our universe that we're slowly understanding more and more of, but maybe never everything. I, I have seen that. Because I'm always fascinated when I think back to the Greek and Roman myths and I think about how they use mythology to explain everything. And then you obviously get people like H.G. Wells who, you know, much more advanced, but there's still bits they didn't quite understand. And now we know an awful lot more. And I kind of wonder, you know, what it will look like in, I don't know, a century, whether we'll look a bit like the Greeks and Romans or H.G. Wells kind of making it up as we go along and they're like, oh, well, we've known about this for ages. It's always a, a wonderful dichotomy when you're writing, you know, when this is read in the future how much will people understand and how much will we look like we were just making it all up? Well, yes, and that's one of the fun things about combining science fiction with cosmic horror is you can really bring that out. You can be like, what will this conflict look like in a hundred years? Let's imagine how it might look. So I want to talk a little bit about scientists because Mm -hmm. I love scientists and scientists are a big part of sci-fi. As I mentioned, you know, I've, I've been reading quite a few cosmic horror sci-fi mashups in particular where we have female scientists as the protagonists which is awesome but at the same time most of these scientists accidentally create world-changing technology that rapidly spirals out of their control and causes immense uh <laughs> damage and you know that just completely goes nuts while, you know, many similar protagonists in literary history have done done this as well, you know, Victor Frankenstein being an iconic example, a lot of the, you know, male characters and so on. But do you think there are different considerations when you have a female in this role? And and what do you maybe have to think about in terms of the, the representation of that? I think that it's actually easy to get caught in a kind of trap here when you're thinking about female characters, because there's a pressure, there's a pressure for almost for women and minority characters to almost have to be role models. And it's wonderful to have role models. It's wonderful to be a role model if that's what you feel drawn to. But at the same time, the point at which it becomes toxic is the point at which you're not allowed almost to be human or to talk honestly about your flaws anymore because you're trying so hard to be a role model. So, so, so I would, I would be hesitant to say, Oh, you can't, you know, you can't have a woman doing that. That's too problematic. When meanwhile, male protagonists in cosmic horror are doing this as well. You know, (laughs) I, I, I wouldn't want to say something like that. I think, I can imagine framings that you'd want to avoid. You'd want to, especially if you're writing the kind of thing where you're making a big deal out of the character's gender, you know, like, oh, it's the first woman to do this and so, and then it goes horribly wrong. That you'd have to handle a little bit more delicately to see what message you were sending. But I think, I mean, The Outside is certainly one of these stories you're talking about where a woman does invent a technology and it does kind of go out of control. But I was thinking about this because you sent me the question in advance. And I think really one of the things that happens in the outside is that, I mean, yes, the technology goes out of control and 
horrible thing starts happening and it's traumatic for the character. But at the same time, even as it's traumatic for her, it's also introducing her to a deeper truth about the universe and that deeper truth upsetting as it is, it's what she ends up needing in order to kind of save the day. So you can do a lot of things with these tropes and it's not always straightforwardly a cautionary tale. You know, it's not always, Oh, well you shouldn't have meddled with that technology because you went too far or, you know, sometimes it's more complicated than that. And so I guess it's just a question really of the framing and the context in which these things happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And also, mm-hmm. um, I like, you know, in, in the outside you've got, she actually worries quite a bit about how it looks because she's so young, straight out of school and leading this huge team. And, you know, all these other people are older and more more experienced than she is and yet she's you know in charge of all these things and so that worry as well so rather than just maybe having everyone you know comment on her gender as you say it's it's not so much about that it's about a lot of different things that she's worried about when it comes to being in in control of such an epic project yes Yasira is full not really of gender anxiety but definitely with a lot of gifted kid anxiety that's in there (laughs) We've talked quite a bit about science going out of control, which always makes the best stories. But to make a really good science spiraling out of control story, you have to have your science being realistic and grounded. So I kind of wondered how much research you felt you needed to do or you had to do. Did you manage to find, you know, a couple of websites that were quite good or did you find yourself falling down a rabbit hole trying to figure out all the science and make it all balance out with the cosmic horror? I'm intrigued to know. I did a little bit of research here and there, but really not very much. Um, the the uh, the research I did do for the outside was really less about the science and more about the mysticism. Actually, I wanted to get the mystical side of it right. I went down a massive Wikipedia rabbit hole of every kind of mysticism I could think of. The science, I was kind of like, well, I'm kind of a scientist myself. I have a PhD in computer science. I know vaguely how these kinds of projects work. And honestly, the rest of it is mostly technobabble. If you if you are like, because she's inventing a thing that doesn't exist in the real world and isn't supposed to exist in the real world. So you just kind of have to figure out enough of the language of the science and the social context of the science that you can kind of get away with hand-waving the rest of it. That's really the approach to it, that I took to it. People, people are calling the books hard science fiction because I did kind of try to go into detail about the experience of doing the science and what that was like. And, and so it gives them this vibe of hard science fiction, but I've never really that's never really been a label I myself put on the book. I don't think of it as hard science fiction. I think of it as a space opera. And I put these bits into it that are like fictional science. And that's what they are. I just love the fact that you wrote a science fiction novel and spent all that time researching mysticism. I just think that's a a wonderful, a wonderful um, (laughs) idea. It's just great. And that this idea that, you know, science is in a weird way, I suppose, science is kind of almost solid and it's like well this is the state of science but mysticism you can kind of blow up into all sorts of proportions like you say get lost down the rabbit hole yes when I was reading it I think what what really made it if I was going to call it a hard sci-fi was kind of the joy of research 
where, you know, she just loves to get lost in papers and trying to figure things out and equations and you know she's really excited by the physics of it and and trying to figure that out and um I think as a nerd (laughs) I could really relate to that and and for me the the kind of her acts of research and her checking the numbers and all that sort of stuff that is kind of what gave it more of the the kind of hard SF feel um rather than sort of Obviously, you say that there was, you know, hand wave, hand wave for the <laughs> techno babble and so on. But because of kind of her, the character being so enamored with research and science, I think that kind of gives it the, the hard SF feel. Well, I'm glad you think so, actually. That's great to hear because I think that's part of what I meant when I said the social context of science just now. I think there's a lot of things in writing where if you can convincingly get across how it feels to the characters, if that part of it feels real, you can get away with a lot in, in the rest of the story. Yeah. And I mean, I know, you know, as you quite rightly say, it's, it's really hard to always sort of want to create really great role models and so on. But I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that I in particular really like about seeing female scientists portrayed in these kinds of stories is you know just how young girls are often just sort of put off the stem fields and they feel like they don't belong there um and and that sort of thing and so when I was reading Ysera's like loving all this research and really like getting into the nitty-gritty of it and and just kind of I don't know, really being in her elements I thought that was really nice and actually you know even if that's not what you were going for, but it, it was a really nice kind of role model there for for young girls and, and women who, who want to feel like they belong in those fields. Well, that's actually great to hear. I'm glad you think so. I'd like to take us back a, a little bit of a step about when you were saying you were trying to break away from the ableism of the genre and its problematic history. So I wanted to ask you what challenges, if any, did you find in putting neurodiverse characters into this kind of world? Did you find that you were changing lots of aspects and it was looking very different to other novels? Or did you find that pretty much it was absolutely fine and they just fitted right in? I should mention, because I don't think I mentioned it in this interview before, that I am on the autistic spectrum myself. And so that influenced how I wrote non-neurotypical characters, obviously. Um, I was drawing from a lot of my own experience. And it was actually a surprisingly nerve-wracking thing to do. I was very nervous about it, even though I've written autistic characters and short stories before. I was very hesitant, really, to put the element of autism into the outside at first. And Part of why that is, it really comes back to what I was saying about the pressure to be role models, because I'm like, this is this is kind of a dark book where lots of bad things happen to all the characters. And, you know, Yasira is autistic and Dr. Talir, kind of this evil scientist who we, well, not morally gray scientist who we eventually meet. Uh, she's also autistic. And what am I saying about autism here? Am I accidentally saying that if you're autistic, you're secretly gonna fall into cosmic horrors or like what am I saying like I was really nervous about that and about whether it would come off in the wrong way and in the first draft of the novel I actually didn't mention autism at all I was like maybe maybe I just shouldn't go there but what I realized while I was writing it is that the autism 
was what interested me about the story. Um, and, and the more I had Yasira getting in to the really intense parts of the book and getting overwhelmed by things and having to process all this new information, I realized she was doing all these things in an autistic way. I was talking kind of in code about my own experiences with sensory overload or other difficulties when I was writing Yasira going through these things. And I didn't want to take that out of the novel. That was what was interesting to me about the novel. So I just kind of gripped my teeth and I was like, all right, let's, let's name it. Let's actually call it autism. And I went back in revisions and I not only made that more explicit, but I started thinking more about, you know, apart from how she reacts to sensory overload and to all these bad things happening, how else is it going to affect Yasira's life if she knows she's autistic? So I went back, especially in the opening chapters where she's doing her job of being a scientist on a space station. I was like, all right, what accessibility needs does she have? To what extent are those accessibility needs met? What does that look like in this future culture that she's from? And how might that look different for Ev, who's also autistic? Sorry, Dr. Talir, I also call her Ev. <laughs> how is that different for Dr. Talir, who's also autistic and from who's from a different planet? And I found when I, once I committed to actually having autism in the story, um, starting to ask myself these questions about the characters actually brought in a lot more depth and helped me develop them even further. So I ended up really enjoying that aspect of the novel. Um, but at the same time, there was still this nervousness, like this is a dark book. I don't know how it's going to land. Um, and I really stayed nervous until it was published and people started saying nice things about it. I was really not sure about it for quite a while. Oh, I know what you mean about um, some of them having really unpleasant things happen to them. It's pretty unavoidable with horror. I wrote a novella a, a while back and it had a gay character in it. And I just happened to mention it in the convention and someone put their hand up and went, does your does your gay character die? And I'm like, no, actually, he's one of the ones that survived. And they went, oh, brilliant. But you know, <laughs> when, when, you, when you do write horror, it is you kind of want to include these kind of people. But at the same time, like you say, you don't want to, you know, have a character that perhaps is underrepresented and then just kill them off in a horrible way. Even if everybody else gets killed off, you kind of feel that you're kind of doing a disservice to this, this underrepresented group. It is, it is quite a tricky one to walk. I sympathize with you there about, um, you know, giving them a hard time, but also representing them accurately. It's tricky. I love though, how you, you didn't even think about putting it in. It was just the character was there. There was no sort of, you know, I'll, I'll write a character plan and they're going to have this, that, and the other. It's just like, no, this is how the character is. And you know what? I'm going to rewrite the world around it. I thought that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, that's, that's what it was like. I want to talk a little bit more about the sort of the mysticism kind of elements. I mean, the kind of the cosmic horror thing, you know, it's often, you know, these ancient gods, but your gods are kind of they're almost cyberpunky because <laughs> they're ai and you know and their angels have like body augmentations and all sorts of things i mean where did that idea come from like blending the kind of the the old gods with actually tech themselves well so um the answer to this question is actually incredibly dorky the answer to this question is that before I created the world of the outside, some of these characters started their life as Dungeons and Dragons characters. And 
I realized I wanted to write a book about them, and I did not want it to be a Dungeons and Dragons book because everyone's seen far too many Dungeons and Dragons fantasies already. We don't need another one. So I was like, I love these characters. What else can I do with them? So I was like, what's the least Dungeons and Dragons thing I could possibly do? And I was like, let's put them in space. No, I love this. I mean, I'm a big tabletop role player, so yes, uh, um, all over this. <laughs> So then I was like, well, in order for these characters to have these traits that they have and these really connections to supernatural powers that they have in the Dungeons and Dragons game, in order for them to have those things in space, what kind of a world would I need to build in space? So I knew there were going to have to be these godlike entities in space, as well as these completely unknowable cosmic horrors that maybe you can't even apply the word God to them. How do you put that in space? And um, I thought about it and I decided to make them artificial intelligences because that's kind of a fun trope, right? Like you have, oh, the computer, the controls, everything. Um, (laughs) It's really, I'm a computer scientist, but that element of the book is really not taken from any of my computer science studies at all. The artificial intelligence we're actually making is super not there, not going to be there anytime in the foreseeable future, but because it's such a fun science fiction trope and because it's because you can kind of see how it could play that role in the universe based on the tropes. I I ended up doing it that way. Weirdly, the other day, my husband and I were talking about 2001 and Hal and how he comes across as very scary because he goes and tries to kill the crew based on a jump of logic. And I was thinking about iRobot and all the Isaac Asimov stuff as well, where you've got these definable rules for robots and AI, and then they don't break it, but they still have catastrophic consequences for humans. Then I was thinking about, obviously, your book, and I was also thinking about the Battlestar Galactica, the the updated one, where you tend to find that the terror of machines is not coming from their logic and their machine capabilities, but more from the fact that they've kind of got a scary level of humanity because certainly in the in the sequel I found that your gods seem to be taking on almost human aspects and I think that makes a lot of sense now you said it was sort of Dungeons and Dragons in space I just wondered if you thought that there was maybe a shift towards saying well you know what in the past robots in general were scary but actually what's scary now is robots acting like humans do you think that's a, a fair assessment or do you think there's still something to be got out of robots are just unbreakable logic machines You can write an interesting story about either one. I think that I didn't intentionally shift how I portrayed the gods um, between the two books, but I did kind of show some new sides to the gods in the second book that hadn't been explicit in the first one. They'd kind of been in my world building notes, but in the first book, you're really dealing with just one god doing one particular task. And in the second book, things have got more complicated and some more of them are pitching in. And you also see a bit more of certain kinds of their inner workings. And there's definitely an interesting kind of blend of machine and humanity in the gods of the outside, because these are, I forget if we mentioned it already, but these are gods that sustain themselves by consuming human souls. So they have this element of humanity that they get because they've literally kind of eaten it and absorbed it into themselves. That's that's where they get some of their more human traits. And I don't want to say too more about that because it's something I'm going to explore in more detail in the third book of the trilogy, which I'm still writing, is kind of 
the nature of the gods and where some of these tendencies of theirs actually came from. I have to say that I think one of my favourite answers has to be your phrase, they've got humanity literally because they've eaten it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. The gods and and the angels in your world, I like to say, you know, in inverted commas, they graciously allow the humans to continue their scientific endeavours that, you know, in some ways kind of question the gods, which, you know, as we all know, that's just not done. Uh, (laughs) But you know, the humans still then rely on the gods for a lot of things, you know, to, to save them in, in times of crises and uh, to defend against other aliens and, and all sorts of things. And it, it feels very much like, you know, you've created a kind of system of checks and balances. And, you know, I have like my high school uh, politics coming back to me now, like <laughs> the parliament. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, but I just, I found it interesting that you, the structure is a little bit less like, okay, the gods say you absolutely have to do these things and that's, that's you know, that's it. And it was more a little bit about like the gods kind of forces kind of removed and yes, they're scary and yes, they'll tell you don't do certain things, but it's more about kind of keeping tabs on humans rather than kind of directly being like, you must do this. And I just thought that was interesting and I wondered where where that sort of the structure for I, I guess basically the government structure <laughs> came from um, and how you map that out. Well, I think that the gods are very invested in keeping humans loyal to them because even though they're much more powerful than humans, humans they don't believe humans could destroy them, but they do believe humans could make their lives very annoying for a while um, and even weaken them in certain ways, and they want to avoid that, and so. One of the ways that they try to keep humans loyalty is by giving humans kind of a little more of that illusion of freedom. Because if if you're being completely controlled in every aspect of your life, you're going to come to resent that very quickly. But if you have, if you're given this little playground and told, oh, you can do anything within this little playground, you know, you're like, oh, well, at least they gave me this little playground. It's It's a little bit you feel a little bit more content that way. And I think the gods are interested in keeping humans more content that way. And especially since if we're talking about regulating science in particular, which is where the story starts, I think that the gods in these books are kind of very actually tuned in to human drives. Like they sort out which god is going to eat which human soul. Uh, based on based on what really drove that human in their life. And so the gods are very aware that the pursuit of knowledge is a human drive. It's something that's intrinsic to us. Some people follow it more than others, but it's not something you can really remove from humanity. So humans need for their own fulfillment and dignity, they need some area in which they can continue to pursue knowledge. And so the gods, I think, are very careful to allow that to happen by not just giving humans all the answers or not just telling them exactly how everything works. Um, They have limits humans are supposed to operate within, but within those limits, they're like, yeah, pursue your knowledge, figure it out for yourself because humans need to figure things out for themselves sometimes. That's the way I look at it. It's almost like breeding, isn't it? You kind of allow them to do these things because it'll make them tastier at the end. Is that kind of what you were aiming aiming at it's like yes yeah, so i will let this one pursue particle physics because it has a sort of garlicky flavor when i consume this color, and, you know 
I, I, had, I had not thought of it that way, but I love that image. I'm going to keep that. <laughs> Ada, you said earlier that obviously the characters kind of came about organically and you didn't set out to write one type of neurodiverse character, whatever. And you talked about your own experience with autism. And I was thinking particularly of the seven who, particularly in the second book, are just so wonderfully drawn together they're so each one's so different and they've got such wonderful skills and strengths and where one of them is weak the other one supports them and obviously Tiv and Yazira as well they're they're in a sort of very close relationship and and they they respect each other and support each other and look after each other and all that kind of thing and I know that obviously every writer puts a little bit of of something into their characters so did you find that with these characters that they each had a little bit of your personality in them or are they perhaps based on, on other people or are they based on things that you wanted to see in books that you perhaps haven't seen in another place and you went, oh, I'm going to use it for that character. That would be brilliant. So this is a fun question because I definitely am an author who puts parts of myself into all the characters, but it's also, it's usually not something I do consciously. It's something where I come up with a character. I'm like, this person seems cool. I'm emotionally invested in them for who knows what reason. And then later when I'm halfway through the book or two thirds of the way through the book, or maybe a year after writing the book, when I go back to it, I'm like, oh, that's what that was about. I I, I sort of realize after the fact what part of myself I've put into them. Uh, Just like I was saying with the autism, I didn't really realize how much of my own experiences with autism were in Yasira until I was halfway through the book and that I recognized what was happening. There are characters like Yasira where I really recognize a lot of myself and a lot of really personal things in those characters. And certainly Yasira is not the only character who I recognize that way when I look at the book. And there are characters who I think have less of me Uh, which doesn't mean they have none of me. I think they all have some of me, but where the connection is not quite as personal or not quite as close. Now with the seven particularly, I actually, there's, I set myself up that I had to add seven characters to the Fallen um, who were going to make a little team. I knew I had to do that because I had mentioned in the outside that there were seven other students who had been kidnapped from the angels besides Yasira. And so I needed those seven students to show up in the second book. I needed them to actually get a measure of human dignity and start doing things for themselves. That was really important to me, just on principle about those characters. But then I start writing the second book and I'm like, oh no, now I have to make seven new characters (laughs) and I have to make them all distinct from each other, but also working together. And I have to have the reader not get confused who's who. How do I do it? Oh no. (laughs) So what I ended up doing was I actually based each one of the seven on a particular acquaintance of mine. And I'm not going to say who. And I think even if the people I based them on ended up reading the book, they would probably not know it was them because I changed enough stuff. I kind of made them, I kind of made them to fit the universe. And that process in itself kind of makes someone distinct is I find what happens, but That helped me a lot with needing to create so many characters at once, because whenever I was like, oh no, how, what would this character do? How do I give them something to do and some way to react? that's different from how all the rest of the seven are reacting. I would say, well, okay, what would this acquaintance of mine do? And that helped me kind of 
keep space in my head for them being different people. And of course, it also took revisions because then I had to go back and make them even more distinct. It was kind of an iterative process. Yeah, but that's a that's a good writing hack, although. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I find that, I don't know if you find that you often pu- end up putting like bits from certain people you know and things, but I find that in almost everything I write, there's just, there's always bits of my dad in there. And I think it's because he's someone who has like very eclectic interests and very like specific things that's just like fun to put in. So yeah, if you ever see anything in mind with like, this man is obsessed with like curbing and drainage. You know what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to these great advances in technology, you know, we have made leaps and bounds. And the thing is, we never really know where our new inventions and, and where things will lead. And that obviously, as we've mentioned, you know, that causes fear and that goes to horror and, and it, it totally can go that way. But there's also been a lot of amazing things that have come from tech. But we see science fiction, we see cosmic horror, we see all these genres in speculative fiction where humans just go too far. Do you think, not to end on too much of a downer, but (laughs) philosophically, do you think that humans are doomed to go too far? That's a good question because... I don't think humans are doomed, but I do think there are certain human tendencies that encourage us to go too far and make it hard to pull back uh, when we need to. And you, you, you can certainly point to examples in, in real life of when technology has been misapplied and has seemed to be out of control and has harmed people. But I think we do ourselves a bit of a disservice in science fiction when we're just like, oh, well, we invented something we shouldn't have invented. And then it just sort of got out of control by itself. You know, it's almost like this is spontaneous. It's almost like this is a spontaneous thing that the tech does when it gets to a certain level. And I don't think that's actually how it works in the real world. I think when we look at real world examples of technology going too far, it's not the technology itself. It's not even some init property of the humans. It's usually a structure that the humans are in. It's unchecked capitalism or unchecked militarism. It's a set of incentives that kind of induce humans to apply the technology in ways they really shouldn't. And at the core of all these cases, I think that really is what you do find is you find a structure where humans are encouraged to make bad decisions. And I think that's very much on the humans and not on the technology or the idea of science itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. It's mm-hmm. like all the, the things around lots of the technology that went into creating bombs or, you know, huge weapons. Actually, yes, exactly. Te- technology itself was not necessarily designed for that um, and has a lot of applications that can be really useful and productive and and helpful and it doesn't need to just be used for like destroying people or you know anything like that but as humans we then tend to use it that way yes yeah and it's up to us as humans how we want to try to use something yeah completely we're gonna wrap it up there but thank you so much for coming and chatting to us it's been really fun oh you're welcome this has been great thanks for having me yeah, it's been awesome, Ada. And I think I'm going to go to bed thinking about gods eating garlicky humans now. Um, it's going to be 
It's going to be a lasting image. I love it. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.